Hi, I'm D. Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. Well, that's good. That's that's very good. That's a very good toast on the foot of this Nica Libre cigar. I have the box-pressed Toro version. The um, Cigars International site uh, has a review on this cigar, and I think I bought it through their sister company, CigarBid.com. And uh, I love how this review reads. It's kind of fun. It's a handcrafted cigar in Nicaragua, and they say it's a veritable candy bar. <laughs> I really like this. Uh, this one is uh, about a 50-ring cigar box-pressed and about 6.5 inches or so in length. It has a Toro end to it. If you don't know much about cigars, that means that it comes to a nice point at one end. Kind of a fancy-looking thing. I feel like I should be wearing like one of my Cuban hats or something when I'm smoking this cigar. Dark, beautiful Maduro wrapper. I like that. You know, if you, if you don't know much about cigars, a Maduro wrapper is super dark. It looks like dark chocolate on the outside. It's a little bit oily looking and oily tasting. A lot of the flavor, especially when I first light up the cigar, comes from the Maduro wrapper. The review goes on to say that it, this is a classic Maduro experience. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen those two words beside one another before. It says it's rich and hearty and silky smooth. Well, the marketing people did a pretty good job because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it is all of that. Deep notes of coffee and earth. Well, I think what they mean, let me relight it, it just, it just kind of started to go out. When they call it deep notes of coffee and earth, what they actually mean is coffee and dirt. <laughs> and then it says they smack the palate in a balanced fashion. I don't know if you could say that. I'm going to smack you in a balanced fashion. <laughs> it might have a different meaning. And then it says it leaves behind a bold, somewhat peppery aftertaste that lingers long on the palate. A hint of dark chocolate. Oh, it's, it's actually true. I've had a few of these, bought a box of them a couple of months ago, I think, and maybe I've had three or four, so I thought I would enjoy this one tonight. Now, let me trim up the edge here just a little bit. Didn't quite light exactly straight. There we go. Mm-hmm. Wow, yes, that is very, very good. I like it, and guess what I have here to drink. I am going to enjoy with this one of Jimmy Russell's favorite blends. This one is called Wild Turkey Rare Breed Barrel Proof. This is a Kentucky Straight Bourbon. I've had it on one other uh, podcast, I think, and you can hear one great big crystal clear ice block in there. So I will pour just a little bit. There we go. That's about one full shot. That might be slightly more than a shot, but wow, that's so pretty. I said on a recent podcast that I finally learned how to make these completely clear, big square ice cubes myself. So I have a whole bunch of those made. Let them sit out so they get nice and clear and then pour the bourbon over the top of that. So this is Wild Turkey Rare Breed and it is with a Nica Libra cigar. So I chose the Rare Breed bourbon. This is a bourbon I actually bought for myself. A lot of the bourbons that I have are gifts. Thank you if you're one of the 
friends that sent me one of these bourbons. This one, however, I just bought myself, and wow, is that good. Mm, it goes so well with that cigar that I'm enjoying. And if you were here, like I always say, I'd put you in that cigar chair right over there on the other side of the studio, and I'd, I'd turn up the fan to suck out all the cigar smoke. <laughs> well, most of it anyway then purify the air, so to speak, we would enjoy some wild turkey rare breed barrel-proof bourbon together. So the reason I picked rare breed is because we have arrived today at part six in our six-part series. This is the last part that I've called, That's Gonna Leave a Mark! Your Relationship with Pain. This is part six, and I picked rare breed because those folks who do what I'm going to share with you and do it well over a long period of time are truly a rare breed. All of us have some sort of relationship with pain throughout our lives. We never really think of it as a relationship. We just think of it as something to tamp down or adapt to or or ignore or maladapt to, <laughs> to use that phrase from our earlier conversations. But very few of us really think about having a relationship with pain and that that relationship can actually be a good one. Whether you and I are experiencing pain that is physiological in its origin, or whether it's psychological in its origin, or psychosocial in its origin. That's about our relationships and how well we get along with one another in the world and how rewarding those relationships are. We call that a highly functioning psychosocial ability. Whether those our pain is, is, a, is an amalgam of all three of those sources or whether it is just one of them, we all know that that pain is something that can really consume us. And so that brings us to this episode. Episode, is that the right word for a podcast? Is it an episode? I don't know. Is it just an, an installment? Is it a podcast? I don't know. You pick a term. And so here we are at number six, the sixth in a series of podcasts about our relationship with pain. This one I'm calling Pain and Purpose. As you probably know, or may have guessed by now, uh, we have a research firm that has spent 30 to 35 years, actually, focused on the fundamental question of why do some people do really, really well under pressure and others do not? Why do some small groups that we came to call teams do really, really well under immense amounts of pressure and others constructed similarly not do well under pressure? This has been a lifelong pursuit, of course, and I am really interested in people and in teams that are, are set out to do amazing things and can handle incredible amounts of pressure and even pain along the way and still thrive and still laugh and still have a great time in life. I've been fascinated by those kind of people my entire adult life. And so that's really been the heart and core of the research that our research firm has done all these many years. Let me tell you a story. Back in the day, we constructed a study to determine if a person's attachment to purpose changed their experience of pain. That is, if a person is in a lot of pain and they do not have a reason that that's worth it to go through that pain, is their experience, their subjective experience of pain, higher than a person going through that same experience for a purpose? So, 
Where would we go for that? We went into a university in Southern California and recruited three sets of collegiate athletes, half of them female, half of them male, and divided and told them we were going to do some research around the experience of pain. So when they all came into the gym, we asked them to agree to be a part of the study and to agree to not drink any alcohol for about a one-month period. Of course, that narrowed the pool. <laughs> there were fewer and fewer athletes that we could find that were willing to go be a part of a study for a paltry sum of money about the uh, impacts uh, of their psychology on pain. Uh, so we didn't have a lot to choose from. <laughs> anyway, so we got down to a number and there were about 90 athletes that we were able to get to be a part of our study. So here's how it worked. And of course, as I describe this, I'll leave a whole bunch out uh, just because uh, it will be utterly boring to you. But um, here's, here's how it worked. On day one, we went into the gym and went into the weight section of the gym and divided the groups randomly into three different groups and making sure that there were the same number of females and males in each group, but randomly designed to uh, fit into group one, group two, and group three. We had two undergrad students that I had brought into the program to help with the process. They were the ones who were supposed to record their responses. So here's the deal. We picked the two two lifts that would, in our opinion and in the opinion of physiologists, create the most lactic acid in the gym, the fastest. You know, if you've uh, worked out before and you've gone weightlifting, you know you get to a place where you're lifting so much and the muscles are creating so much lactic acid and it can't be carried away from the muscle tissue fast enough. So get to a place where you get the burn and then the burn turns into actual pain. <laughs> and that's usually what causes us to stop lifting, stopping our reps. We won't push another rep or two because of the perceived amount of pain that is a result of lactic acid. We don't quit lifting. We don't slow down our reps. We don't stop the reps and take a rest because our muscles can't do anymore most of the time. Most of the time, it's just because we're experiencing lactic acid and our brain says, stop it, stop it, stop it, you're going to die. <laughs> All right. So we set up these three groups, group one, group two, and group three. All we want you to do is to do as many curls as you possibly can until you can't do any more and we'll record how many curls you did and how much aggregate weight that was and, and no pausing. Also then report your level of pain right at the end on a scale of one to a hundred. Then we quickly switched them over to doing squats and had them do the same thing. So, and so those two lists are the one, according to many physiologists, that create the highest sensation of pain. So curls and squats. There are a bunch of other lists, of course, that could do that, but these are the ones that seemingly create the highest sensation of pain. Go ahead and do as many squats as you possibly can. Don't take any pauses between each rep. Do as many as you can without pauses until you simply can't do anymore. We'll count that. We'll add up the amount of weight you just squatted or we'll add up the amount of weight you just curled. And then you quickly tell us on a scale of 1 to 100, what is your level of pain? All right, that's it. Okay, go away. We'll see you in a week. And by the way, we ask them not to work out at all between these lifts. So all these athletes were in off seasons. They didn't increase their fitness in any way in the intervening days. So seven days later, they come back and we do the same thing again, the three different groups, group one, group two, group three. And then we ask them through our grad students, we said, hey, why don't you name yourselves as a team? You're going to be together a few more times. Why don't you give yourselves a name? So they each did. They came up with names for the teams. I don't recall what the first names were, but let's just stick with the group one, group two, and group three, even though they came up with better names than that. And we said, all right, let's do it again. Okay. So in group one, group two, and group three, Three, we noticed that they lifted a little bit more weight and their pain numbers in aggregate were down. And we attributed that to competition because not only did we ask them to name themselves, but we had brought in 
flip charts on tripods and set uh, up the name of the group at the top of the flip chart and then wrote down what their numbers were. And without even saying it was a competition, without trying to prompt that it was going to be a competition, they all, because they were competitive athletes, turned it into a competition. Go team one, that kind of thing. So they reported lower levels of pain and lifted more weight in the same uh, period of time. Okay, no big deal. All right, go away. We'll see you again in seven days. When they came back for the third time, we actually turned it into uh, overtly a competition and told them you're in a competition to see who can lift more weight. And so, of course, because of the competition, all three of the groups went up about 20, 25% or so, if I recall, in the amount of weight that they lifted in the same period of time, aggregately between the two, the, between the curl and the squat lifts. And so they went up quite a bit in the amount um, in uh, group two, one or group three, one. I don't remember which one it was, uh, just, but just by a little bit. And then their pain report, the number they gave to how much pain they were feeling at the end of that lift, went down about 10 to 15%, depending on the team. So their, their lift went up, their productivity went up, but their report on the pain went down. So I said, great, this is fun. Okay, go away, come back one more time. And when they came back the final time, they didn't know it was the final time, uh, we had our graduate assistants subtly slip into the team meeting at the beginning before the lifts began why we were actually doing this. And each group was told exactly the same thing, that we were doing this research so we could learn something about pain management and something about how people worked out that we were going to share with the kids down the hill. There was a high school team down the hill that was performing very well as a regional powerhouse in football. And so our graduate assistants were saying, what we what we want to do is learn from you here at the lofty college, the lofty university, so that we can share what we learned from you down the hill about how to lift and how to manage pain and how to work out. So go ahead and start lifting as a team. Not only did we add now team identity with a name, not only did we, which caused by naming the team that caused the pain levels to go down and the productivity, that is how much weight they lifted in a given amount of time to go up a little bit. Then we added the competition, which caused their pain levels to go down a little bit and their productivity to go up a little bit. Now we added a purpose. The reason we're doing this research, oh, by the way, is so we can help the kids. <laughs> and their pain levels went down by 50% across the board and their productivity went up by another 10 to 12%. That was so intriguing to us, of course, we thought maybe we had done something incorrect in the study, so we wanted to see if we could replicate it. We went to another university about a year later and replicated the results almost exactly the same way. And then we shared that research and had other folks around the country replicate this, and it has now been replicated about 50 times. In every case, when people are given a purpose, even a purpose that is slightly distanced, that is outside of themselves, in every case, when those college athletes were told, you're doing this for somebody outside of yourself that you will help by doing this, their reported subjective measurements of pain dropped dramatically at a minimum 50% and their productivity went up in every single case. So why is it that whenever you ask your child to mow your lawn, it is such hard work and their hands hurt and their feet hurt and their neck hurts and they just have such a hard time. But when the neighbor asks, will you help? Will you mow the lawn for me? They'll do the same work or better and have almost no pain. Why is it when you are asked to go do something to help somebody that is physically challenging or physically painful or mentally challenging, if you're doing it for someone else that you care about, the pain of that struggle is significantly less and in some cases barely noticeable compared to when you're doing exactly the same thing for yourself?
Why is it that if you have got some sort of joy set before you, that the pain you experience goes way, way down and the quality of your work goes way up? This is one of the most profound truths of life. If you and I are working hard or struggling, experiencing pain, and it fits into a larger purpose where we believe that by doing so, we're going to be able to help someone else that we care about, the subjective feelings of struggle, difficulty, and pain diminish. And in some cases, diminish so much that we can, upon completion of that work, barely remember the pain. And so, here we are. Pain fades when it's eclipsed by purpose. When we have a perspective that says, I get to do this so that I can help someone else, the difficulty from the aching knees to the aching heart fades. If we are the kind of people who are in the midst of struggle and difficulty and pain, whether it's physical pain that is chronic or whether it's psychological pain or psychosocial pain, that is the pain we have in our relationships, if the experience we are a part of has a purpose to it that is a good, worthy, and lofty purpose, and if that purpose is there for someone else, our relationship with pain is utterly transformed. If, on the other hand, we're experiencing a setback, a difficulty, a pain, psychologically, psychosocially, relationally, physically, and they all kind of go together from time to time, that we feel like has no purpose, the pain is so great that it is hard to bear. Over the years, there have been many, many studies conducted that all point to this fundamental and profound truth. That purpose decreases pain. It does so in people who are very sensitive to pain physiologically and very sensitive to pain psychosocially, that is our relationships with others. It does so in people who don't feel a lot of pain at all. In every case, if I am going through something and the pain that I experience as a part of that process of getting from here to there is noticeable, if I have a purpose and if that purpose is outside of myself, the pain doesn't totally vanish but it almost does. Over the years, neuroscientists and psychologists have not really come to understand the true mechanism that is at play when our pain goes down. When I'm helping you lift a bag of groceries that are incredibly heavy and the edges of the bag are sharp, that I'm carrying that into the house for you, my actual subjective report and experience of pain is significantly less than if I'm doing it for myself. And none of us really have yet come to understand what is going on mechanically in the body, what is going on with the mechanism of pain itself that causes us to actually report pain differently when we are helping other people. But it is utterly intriguing and it is almost bulletproof. We also have learned over time that pain is actually a construct within the brain. This does help us a little bit. Pain is a construct within the brain. And you all know, you've talked to people before, well, that's a good pain or that's a bad pain. If you go to the gym and you lift and it's lactic acid, you know that's a good pain. If you tear connective tissue, that's bad pain. <laughs> if you got a little bit of a headache because you've been working really hard and maybe you didn't get your caffeine, you could say, oh, that's a good pain. But if it's one of those deep kinds of headaches where there's something wrong, you know, that's that's bad pain, okay? We can kind of tell the difference a little bit, but still, pain is a construct that we make up in the brain. Here's a new word for you, nociception. 
Nociception really is the description of the mechanics of pain. It's how the nerves are working and it's how the signals are being sent from the place where the pain is being experienced up to the brain. But until the brain grabs that signal and interprets it, it is not actually pain. It's just an electrical current that's running. And then furthermore, not only is pain a construct of the brain, but suffering is also a construct of the brain. That is, if I am suffering, it is because I think the pain has no purpose. So if you are experiencing protracted and difficult pain, psychological pain, or psychosocial pain, or if you're experiencing physical pain, and you want to be able to transform that relationship with pain, it's all about the purpose of the pain. There are four things we can do to decrease the pain of loss, of difficulty, of sadness, of physiological injuries or illnesses. There are four things we can do. And they flow from these four questions. Are you ready? Question number one. Do I have a me focus or an others focus? If I am focused on me all of the time, my pain will be higher. If I have a focus on somebody outside of myself that I'm wanting to help or support or strengthen or encourage in some way, my pain will be subjectively significantly lower. Do I have a me focus or an others focus? Question number two, answer this one and it will help you manage your pain. Do I have a now focus or a later focus? Question number three, do I have a grow focus? Am I trying to grow, stretch, learn, or I maintain focus to protect myself and not lose anything kind of focus? And question number four, do I have a fix this mindset or do I have a create something new mindset? So when we look at all four of those questions together, we know that people who have a healthy and positive and strong relationship with pain are people who have an other's focus and a later, I'm doing this for the future, focus, who have a growth focus and who have a create focus. You put all of those together and the subjective report of pain is very, very different, significantly lower. So much so in many people's cases that they do not actually even remember the pain of a difficult situation that they happen to be a part of. So do you know why you're working? Do you know why you're doing what you're doing? Do you have a purpose that is so clear and so compelling and focused on serving, helping, expanding, growing others? Do you have such clarity about that purpose for your life or for your project or for your business or for your organization? Are you crystal clear about that purpose? If that purpose is a, is a compelling and wonderful purpose, you will have a very healthy relationship with pain. If, on the other hand, you are me-focused, you're all about now, you're about feeling good now and getting results instantly and now, you're about maintaining and protecting and securing everything around you, and you're about just fixing problems one after the other as they come to you rather than creating, it's likely that you will have a very, very intense level of pain whenever something sets you back or whenever you feel something physically. So are you... Are you part of that rare breed of people who, uh, whenever you experience a difficulty, a setback, a challenge, physical pain, psychological pain, relationship pain, whenever you experience that, you're able to say, ah, you know, that's, it's okay. I, I can manage this because you have a purpose, because of the joy that's actually in front of you that you can imagine that you're working toward that is going to end up making the people you care about's lives better. 
If that's you, you likely have a wonderful relationship with pain. What a weird way to even think about it. What a weird way to talk about it. Well, there we go. We're right at the end of our series on pain. Next time we get together, I got a whole different direction I want to take you, and it's going to be fun. Thanks for taking some time. You're probably a rare breed. I'm going to finish this wonderful rare breed bourbon that I've been sipping on every couple of minutes while I've been chatting with you. And I'm going to enjoy this cigar, the rest of the cigar. And I'm going to sit back and be grateful for the people in my lives who have such a profound and deep purpose that they are a rare breed with a really strong and vital relationship with pain. (laughs) Keep it up. Talk to you soon. And I'm sure you've heard about it by now, but you may want to check out our YouTube channel that has this kind of information, lots of helpful tips for folks who are in leadership, management, supervisory positions, or if you're an influencer of people daring folks to do great things. Check us out on YouTube. It's the HILT, H-I-L-T, Academy, High Impact Leadership Training Academy on YouTube. Some great stuff. Join us over there. Subscribe when you get there, and that'll let us know you like that stuff. Anyway, have a great day. Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.